It's not the question that women would be better judges or that we ought to have a quota system or anything like that. But what is true is that you bring to the court your own personal life experiences. And what is also true, people who appear before the courts need to have the bench look something like them. What I always have said is that you have to have the trust and confidence of the public in order for the courts to do their job. And for there to be trust and confidence of all of the public, you need to have more women represented on the bench. I'm Lindsay Linton Buck, and you're listening to Women in Wyoming, where I talk with inspiring and influential women around the state and learn about their lives, journeys, and how they got to where they are today. This time, Marilyn Kite, Wyoming's first female Supreme Court Justice and first female Chief Justice. I talk with Marilyn about how she became the first woman to serve on Wyoming's highest court, why she felt it was too late, and how more women can follow in her footsteps. Here's Marilyn. How did you get into the field of law? Well, sort of by accident, like life happens to you. I had studied international affairs at the University of Wyoming and had a French minor and thought I wanted to go work in the United Nations. But then I realized you'd have to leave Wyoming. (laughs) And I really didn't want to leave. This is in 1970. And I was interviewed by a gentleman from one of the oil and gas companies who was looking for what they call a landman, which is somebody who studies title to minerals. And he's the one that first suggested to me, I might want to think about law school. So I did, (laughs) after talking to a few people and visualized myself in that profession. What made you think that it would be a good fit? Well, I always liked government and politics, and of course, the law affects both of those areas. I'm not sure I knew how good of a fit it was going to be. In fact, I initially thought I wanted to be a trust officer in a bank and not practice law. But the whole approach that you take, the legal reasoning process that you go through to figure out issues related to the law somehow fits what I is satisfying to me, trying to find out the answer, trying to do the research and put pieces together to understand what the law is in a particular area was something I really enjoyed. And then you have to be a little bit of a people person or you can't do the job very well. And I think I would define myself as that. So interacting with clients and other lawyers and ultimately with judges and in courts was something that that I was comfortable with. And what was the climate like in law school when you were a student? Were there a lot of women or what was the demographics? (laughs) We ended up with 125 people in our class and there's normally about 75 or 80. But even out of that number, I think there were only seven women students. And at the time, I think I've counted it at one point, I think there were five or six women lawyers in Wyoming that were actually practicing. So you were definitely a novelty. It wasn't a disadvantage. It didn't feel unwelcoming. It felt very much like I fit in. It became or could become more of an issue as you're out in the practice itself where you're dealing with folks that aren't used to having women in this profession. Did you ever face that personally when you got out of law school? Well, yes, but in subtle, at least known to me, not terribly important ways. I mean, there were times where people would presume in a meeting room where we were getting ready to have a meeting that someone else who didn't know me would come in and presume I would I should go get the coffee. You know, those kind of little slights happened now and then. It wasn't that significant. And I honestly think, as I look back, that one of the keys to a successful law practice is being able to generate business and generate clients. And I had some success with that. And I think in part it was because of the novelty that, you know, you sort of stand out because there aren't a lot of you around. So it didn't, to me, 
present a disadvantage, but you clearly had to get people used to the idea. Who were some of your mentors that helped you get to where you are today? I think before law school, I think my dad probably was the biggest role model. He was a dentist. He really wanted to accomplish a lot. He was interested. He was curious. He was uh, aggressive in a positive way of if he felt strongly about a particular issue. And he also really became known as a as an outstanding dentist nationally, and he lectured and traveled the country a lot. So his drive to be excellent in his field, looking back, did it have an impact on me uh, in terms of wanting to succeed and wanting to devote myself to something bigger than, than just my individual private life. And his mother, who was a tough little lanky from England and who came to the United States when she was nine, I think, in about... 1902 and ended up in Hannah, Wyoming, which was a hard scrabble mining town. And in the space of five years, she lost her father, her husband, and two of her children and was left with my dad trying to survive in Hannah and watching how tough she was and at the same time how everybody loved her. And she had a real devotion to other people and to serving people. She did what she thought was right. They were extraordinary people. They really were. There was a a lot of written about my grandmother in particular. Her name was Mary Ford, and there was a big publication in the Denver Post about Mary Ford, her town, and about Hannah and her growing mm. up in Hannah. She left her mark. Mm. Well, so are you. Well, so did you. <laughs> well, you see how hard they had it at that just to physically survive, and uh, uh, it makes what we do today look, you know, pretty easy. Can you talk about when you got out of law school and some of those first obstacles you faced when you were out of school and landing a job? I went to work initially right out of law school with the Attorney General's office, and it's a series like life is of good timing events. They were at the time looking for a lawyer to advise the Environmental Quality Department, which is a brand new agency. The good thing about being in the AG's office as a young lawyer, you get a tremendous amount of responsibility, probably more than you should have, that you wouldn't get out in private practice. That assignment and that experience was really significant for me. And then the next thing was I just, again, by happenstance, met a man who was a partner in a Denver law firm that I ultimately went to work with, Holland and Hart. He was a real character, larger than life, and he was not enlightened in the sense of women's rights or the changes in the role of women in our society. He was exactly the opposite, but he could see if somebody was going to help his clients and get results, he didn't care if you were a man or a woman. He was a tremendous business developer, largely because of his personality and because of his intellect. I mean, he really was a brilliant lawyer. So I got to tag along with him, and he had this vision of having Wyoming offices of this Denver-based law firm, and that I just happened to come in at the right time. You were pretty influential in opening up that Wyoming branch, correct? Well, yes, and I don't know that I would have gotten a job with the firm if I had come up the normal way. It was highly competitive. They were looking at the Ivy League schools, and he convinced this law firm, which was very conservative, to take a chance. What was that like when you opened up the branch in Cheyenne? Well, the funny part was I initially, I lived in Laramie, and so I talked him into letting me open the office in Laramie because I didn't want to move. And we actually were Holland and Hart and Kite for a long time, or for two and a half years, until I became a partner of Holland and Hart. And then I used to joke the 
I became a partner, but my name went off the door instead of onto the door. But at that point, it was clear to everybody the office needed to be in Cheyenne, and state government was where it was happening. And so we opened the officially when we opened the Holland and Hart office, it was in it was in Cheyenne, and it was, you know, it was terribly exciting, but also stressful. When I first opened the office, uh, the firm gave me I think it was fifteen thousand dollars seed money. There was a lot of doubting Thomases in the firm as to whether this was going to work, but it did work. And then I think it was six months later, I got to go down to the firm meeting in Denver and hand them their $15,000 back uh, because we were up and running and making money. It's awesome. Yeah. What was going on when you decided to shift from private practice to the Supreme Court? Well, I had moved from Cheyenne to Jackson because my husband and I got married and he was in practice here. So I was involved with establishing a Jackson office at that point in time for Holland and Hart in addition to the Cheyenne office. And, you know, I'd never really thought about being on the bench and being a judge. In fact, I kind of envisioned it as being kind of boring as opposed to being out in the mix of things. We had adopted our son and he was six years old at the time. And I was experiencing the same stress all women that have children and try to have a work life have is balancing those two things. There was an opening. And the more I talked to other women who were on the court, it seemed to me a little more manageable. My brother was a district judge in Rollins, and so he and Justice Lehman both encouraged me, and so did my husband, Skip, thought it would be a good change. Of course, you have to apply, and Wyoming has a long, involved process for selection of judges, and I was hardly assured of getting the position, but it was for the first time I decided, you know, I think I'll take a chance. Looking back on it, I think I was very much ready to make a change and do something different, and even though I had to commute from Jackson to Cheyenne for the monthly arguments, it just removed a lot of stress. You didn't have to worry about clients and deadlines and external pressures. You had your own pressure of getting your work done. That was manageable. I could do that and be a mom much more easily than I could be a practicing lawyer and be a mom. A lot of women do and are very good at it, but it's difficult. So the motivation was had a lot to do with my lifestyle, but the closer I got to preparing my application and really thinking about it, the more exciting it became to me that you could actually participate in the development of the law, be able to do the fun part of being a lawyer without worrying about whether somebody could pay you for it, you know, or or whether you had to take a position because your client needed you to take that position versus what you think the correct position is as a matter of law. Those things converged and seemed like the right thing to try to do. What was your experience like being the first woman on the Wyoming Supreme Court bench? I was proud to be the first. I, I hope I performed in a fashion that would cause people to think there ought to be a second. But the fact of the matter is we were behind a lot of other states. And I felt gratified because there should have been a woman on the court a long time ago. We talk about the first woman on the court. Well, that was in 2000. And we had the first woman judge in anywhere probably in the world, but certainly in our country. And I think it was 1872 or something like that where Esther Hobart Morris was appointed as a justice of the peace. And of course her statute's in front of the Capitol and she's very famous. Well, it turns out she was appointed, her predecessor left office before the end of the term. I can't remember why. She lasted six months and then had to run for office and was not selected, was not voted into office. So she really only served for six months. That was in the 1870s. And we didn't get another woman judge until Betty Kale was appointed in Fremont County in the 80s, in 1980s. So 
it was 110 or 115 years. That's not a particularly stellar record for the equality state. <laughs> there are lots of reasons for it. Nobody looking out to discriminate against women, but it was too late. <laughs> Let's talk about your time on the bench and you know some of the defining moments where you felt really proud or maybe it was a, a challenge that you overcame. Well, I think it is a humbling experience when you realize that the decision you make affects people's lives so directly. And there were plenty of cases where you felt the burden of that responsibility and obligation in criminal cases, in child custody cases, those things that affect people very deeply and change their lives. When I was on the court, I think I'd only been on the court about six months, the chief justice assigns cases out to the individual justices to write the opinions. And for a variety of reasons, I got the assignment to write our school finance case that was before the court at that point in time. And I was pretty doggone new to take on something of that magnitude. It was a tough opinion to work on and to write, but we were a unanimous court, which was great. And when it was all finished, I felt very good about the fact that I think we did the right thing and we ruffled a lot of feathers. But that's one of the things that's gratifying in Wyoming. The Wyoming Supreme Court, is like any other court, has made a lot of controversial decisions that involve other branches of government. And we have been lucky to have statesmen in those other branches of government that recognized they needed to follow what the court ruled. And that's not the case in a lot of states. We have, especially today, a great deal of divisiveness over what a court does, whether the other branches of government are going to even follow it, which is, in my view, critical to our functioning of our system. So there were lots of times where when you've got a particularly tough case, working with the other four justices and struggling to get the right answer and hopefully getting it, and it was always felt better when you were unanimous, was very, very satisfying. It made me realize that you need to be succinct, you need to be clear, and you need to communicate in a way that, that gets your point across to, to whoever it is you're trying to communicate with. But the way that you're kind of brought down to size is through your children. I used to joke about how, oh great, I'm going to be on the court. I have, I live with a trial lawyer and I have a six-year-old son, so maybe finally I'll have the last word in an argument. I learned very quickly that's not the case because you can put the opinion out and you might have the last written word, but then everybody has an opinion about your opinion and you can't respond. And so that was that was tough for me at times. But my son was as I said, six when I was first appointed, and it was maybe a year or so after that I went to pick him up at school. He was in first or second grade, and one of his little buddies came up to me and with his hands on his hips sort of doubting, and he looked at me and he said, is it true that you're the judge of the world? <laughs> Which I got a great kick out of, because obviously, as you might, you know, I said, well, I'm not the judge of the world, but I'm the judge of his world. <laughs> so... You know, it's telling. You're you're not the judge of the world. You're the judge of a very limited area of jurisdiction, and you do your job in that area and hope you get it right. What were those uh, key factors that you always tried to apply to every case? What mattered to you? Well, I think one thing that is just an insoluble problem, but we as society don't do a great, and certainly as, as uh, the legal process is concerned, we don't do a great job in taking, giving access to everybody equally to the system, in part because it's expensive. And if you have to have a lawyer to access the system of justice and you can't afford a lawyer, you're in a lot different position than the person who can. So 
becoming more efficient and more accessible is something I felt, I still feel very strongly about. And we worked real hard. We established an Access to Justice Commission that ended up getting legislation passed that added a filing fee on things that go to court and took all of that money and established a Equal Justice for Wyoming, which is a governmental agency that does a lot of different things, but it enhances and makes lawyers available in a lot of different ways to people who can't afford it. Does that still exist today? It's thriving today. And what was the name of that organization again? Equal Justice Wyoming. And the bar does a great job of individual lawyers giving of their time for free. It's called pro bono. But they can't begin to serve all of the people who have the need. It, at one point in time, and I'm sure it's, the numbers are slightly different now, but I'm sure the proportions are the same, there were 75,000 Wyoming citizens who made so little that they would qualify and be able to get access to free governmental assistance if it was there. Well, 75,000 people, and I don't know, that I think Equal Justice Wyoming last year served something like 3,500 people, which much more than we were able to do before. And I don't, there's, there's not a number out there for how many were served by private lawyers doing pro bono work, but it's not anywhere close to the total number of people who need the services. The Constitution guarantees equal justice for all, but that's a kind of a false promise if you can't get into the system and know how to navigate it. So one of the things that that I worked on, that I enjoyed working on when I was Chief Justice, was trying to simplify processes. You know, it's sort of like your income tax. You've got to get it simpler so that everybody has an equal shot at it, so that it doesn't take so much time. Because the delay in the old adage is a delayed justice delayed is justice denied, and that is so true in domestic relations where you have people who are trying to get their lives back together and they can't get a decision out of the court because the court's so backlogged. To recognize that there are people behind these cases that need an answer, and they need it promptly, and hopefully it's the right legal answer. But from my standpoint, I guess I always tried to make sure I did everything I needed to do to get through the process in, a, in an effective way, made my priority getting it done on time. If you could advise young women about going into the practice, what would you want to tell them? What I would tell young women is there's just a tremendous opportunity to not only support yourself and your family and make to make money at it, but to have a satisfying professional life. And you can do all kinds of things with a law degree. You don't have to be, you know, a practicing lawyer. You don't have to go to court. The law degree helps you in government, helps you in business, and it gives you just a well-rounded education. Any woman that's kind of close to being interested, I would strongly encourage. And then in terms of being a judge and getting on the bench, think about this as an option and then get yourself prepared for it because you need to have an experience where you have seen lots of areas of law, where you've gotten in the courtroom, where you know people around the state so that they know you. I didn't do this intentionally. I tell these young women lawyers what I think they should have done. I sort of stumbled into it. But if we want more, then they've got to start thinking about how do I prepare myself for that, make myself available and well-qualified for the time an opening comes up. There's still only one woman on the Wyoming Supreme Court bench. Why do you think that is? Why don't we have more ladies up there? Well, Justice Kate Fox joined the court a year and a half before I retired, and there were two of us for a while. 
was great fun actually to have her there and to develop my relationship, professional relationship with her, but also my friendship with her. It's hard to say exactly why. Initially, it was just a question of numbers. I mean, when I told you how few people were in law school, you obviously have fewer women out practicing and fewer women practicing for a length of time to give them enough years of experience to qualify for the job. But the more I use those explanations, the more frustrated I get because those only work for a while. And we have, I think it's something like 35, 37% of the lawyers in Wyoming now are women and only approximately 10% of the judges are women. So we haven't caught up. And in my opinion, we haven't caught up fast enough. In part, it's trying to get women interested in the application process to consider that as an option for their career. I served on our Judicial Nominating Commission before I became a judge, and then as I was Chief Justice, you are the chairman of that organization, and it selects the three applicants from all those that apply to submit to the governor for his choice, and then he appoints the judge. And there are many times where we had no women applicants, or we had a few women applicants who did not begin to have the same number of years and and quality of experience that the male applicants had. So while I never saw any overt prejudice or discrimination by those members of those commissions, they tried very hard to pick the top three people, no matter what the gender, and that's what they should do. But the result simply doesn't measure up. And so it's a combination of things, I think, getting good applicants, getting them in the right place. You know, you get an opening somewhere, and maybe there are no women that are currently practicing at that level in that location, and so it's a time and place thing. But the end result, we're still falling short. And you know, it's not the question that women would be better judges or that we ought to have a quota system or anything like that. But what is true is that you bring to the court your own personal life experiences. And what is also true, people who appear before the courts need to have the bench look something like them so they feel like somebody understands their lives. I think in a lot of cases, they don't feel that way. It'd be interesting to to sort of test that and try to talk to people who came before the Wyoming Supreme Court when there were two women there and see if their feelings were any different about it. But what I always have said is that you have to have the trust and confidence of the public in order for the courts to do their job. And for there to be trust and confidence of all of the public, you need to have more women represented on the bench. I hope young women lawyers will think about it more, and the commissions and the governors that come down the line will also agree with that and hopefully get that end result. Absolutely. What does the next chapter look like for you? Continuing to dabble in the law is something I'd like to do. I think you're never limited in what you can get out there and do. I'm very, very thankful and humbled by the opportunities I've had, and I hope that my service causes people to recognize that women have a lot to offer to the bench and that justice was done or at least people were trying very hard to do justice to get the law right and to apply it to the facts in the way that either the legislature or the constitution intended you to do that was marilyn kite wyoming's first female supreme court justice and first female chief justice Learn more about Marilyn's initiative, Equal Justice Wyoming, at LegalHelpY.org. That's LegalHelpWY.org. This project is supported in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council and the Equipoise Fund. Momentum is our nonprofit fiscal sponsor. 
To sponsor a profile or make a tax-deductible contribution, visit our website or email us at support at womeninwyoming.com. And if you like what you hear, listen and subscribe at womeninwyoming.com, where you'll also see Marilyn's full profile and portraits, as well as more stories about Wyoming women who are shaping the West. We're also on Instagram at womeninwyo. I'm Lindsay Linton-Buck, and you've been listening to Women in Wyoming. Women in Wyoming.